This morning we get to continue in Hebrews 7, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, really this chapter is one cohesive, coherent, unified thought from beginning to end, and it's a little bit difficult to divide it into smaller sections, different uh, students, different commentators divided up differently. This morning uh, we're going to continue from where we left off last time at verse 11 and go all the way through to verse 25. That's a big chunk, but uh, hopefully it will make sense and fit together. Um, And then we'll, Lord willing, finish up the, uh, the rest of the chapter next week. So this morning before us is Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 to 25. Uh, Let me read that for us. As always, this is the very word of our living God. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So ends again the reading from God's holy, infallible, and errant word. May he write it upon our hearts here this morning as we come before it. As we do, let me again pray for us, and uh, we'll consider God's word. Let me pray. Father in heaven, as always, we ask your blessing. Now as we come before your word, uh, do bless this time. Do fulfill your own promises, we ask. That when your word goes out, it does not return to you empty. It is not a futile effort, but instead accomplishes everything you purpose for it and is successful in everything for which you send it. For us, 
We ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit here upon us so that our ears would be open to hear and our eyes would be open to see everything that you would have us learn from your word this morning. Do you make it, we ask, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path so that we might walk according to what it teaches us. As always, our Father, we ask this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. For there's an old saying that I know you've heard. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well known, pretty good rule. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Why fix something that's working? But like any good rule, it has its opposite. If it is broke, fix it. (laughs) You got to fix it, right? If it's broken, it needs fixing. Could be as simple as a light bulb that burned out that needs replacing. Maybe your vacuum cleaner is old and tired and worn out and not cleaning up anymore. Maybe it's a component, a key part of your car. Maybe it's your tires that wore out. Maybe it's even worse, the transmission went out. Something needs to be fixed. It's broke, you got to fix it. But it also could be not just a piece of of equipment, a, a tool or something. We talk about it as well as about ways of doing things. If it's broke, it's got to be fixed. A process, a procedure, workplaces and organizations are full of all sorts of process improvement and programs and efforts to, to fix broken ways of doing things. That's what I got my bachelor's degree in, for crying out loud. How do we fix, how do we improve things that are broken? Whatever it is, if it's broke, you got to fix it. Now, something that's broken and needed fixing is at the heart of what our passage is about this morning. It's not just something, it's some things. There were things that are broken, things that are inadequate. They're not working the way they should be. And the standard for how they should be working is incredibly high, as high as it can get. Perfection. If it ain't perfect, it needs to be fixed is the essential argument that the author is making in the verses we're looking at this morning from 11 to 25. Well, what are those things that can't attain perfection, that need fixing? Well, it begins with us. (laughs) It begins with you and me, men, women, and children. Every human being who has ever lived, as we read from our New Testament passage, there is no one righteous, not one. But there are other things that are broken that he refers to. The Old Testament priesthood is broken and needs fixing. The law that goes with the Old Testament priesthood is broken and needs fixing. So in this passage, we have imperfect, broken people, priests, and a law. And the solution that God sends to fix it all is his very own son, Jesus Christ. So again, the focus of this passage, these verses, is the imperfection, the inadequacy of the priests and the law, and how Jesus comes as a better priest, a better king, who occupies the position of a better priesthood, and is king over a better law. But the reason that Jesus is sent is not just to be a better priest or to be a better king, 
But as we get to verse 25, and that's why I wanted to go all that distance this morning from 11 to 25, is so that he can save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. To the uttermost. In other words, completely, fully, nothing left on the table. As completely, as perfectly, as, as adequately, as, as whatever you can think of as possible. To the uttermost, Jesus came to save his people. Every single man, woman, and child who draws near to God through him by grace alone and through faith alone. So it's a long passage. It's a lot of verses to look at, but it has this theme running through it. That which is broken, that which is better, and those who are made perfect. And I want to talk about each of those things in turn. What's broken in the priesthood and in the law, how Jesus is superior to that which is weak and useless, and how because of that, he's able to save and perfect his people. So let's begin with what's broken. That phrase, weak and useless. There are several things said about the priesthood and about the law that point out the need for something better. But let's take a step back for a quick moment and, and review what's got us to this point. I don't want to look at the whole book of Hebrews, but just going back into chapter 6, where the author begins to talk about the importance of Melchizedek and how he's a pattern for or a shadow of the reality that we have in Jesus, who he calls a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he talks about how, uh, in 13 to 20 of chapter 6, how, how we're reminded or should be reminded of Genesis 22, where Abraham, the great patriarch of all God's people, was commanded to sacrifice Isaac, went up to Mount Moriah in faith, believing that even if he killed his son, that God could raise him from death, according to Hebrews eleven nineteen, Because God had made a promise, through Isaac, the blessings will come. God provided a ram instead and swore by himself. He couldn't swear by anything greater. Swore by himself that he would keep his promises to Abraham. So the author is pointing us to the character of God, the promise keeper of promise keepers, so that we can have confidence in the promises of God to us, especially that Jesus, who died to pay for our sin, who rose from death to guarantee our resurrection from eternal life, and has gone into the holy presence of God as our forerunner to prepare the way for us, announcing our coming to the Father himself so that our faith, our hope in those promises could be sure, just as sure as Abraham's as he went up that mountain to kill his very own son. Then he moves on in verses 1 to 10 of of chapter 7 to talk about how great Melchizedek must have been, this priest of God, this king of righteousness and king of peace, So great that even the great Abraham, again pointing to the very pinnacle, the very source of our inheritance in God, even Abraham paid a tenth of the spoils of war to Melchizedek. And he's referring us back to Genesis 14 now. And in Abraham, even Aaron, the great high priest, even the Levites, 
and all their descendants paid a tithe, and therefore Melchizedek is superior to them. And if Jesus is our high priest and king after the order of Melchizedek, then he also has to be superior to those prior priests and Levites and of a greater order than they is. And so now in verses 11 to 25, he continues that idea, that theme, by pointing out the weakness of what came before and the greatness of Jesus by comparison. That old system of priests and law were broken. They needed something better. They needed fixing. So let's look at some of the ways that the author shows us how broken those things were. He begins really from verses 11 to 17 to show us the need for a priest of a a different order than Aaron and the Levites. And he gets to the very promise of God in verse 17 from Psalm 110. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And of course he's referring to the promise made to Christ that someone, that something is Jesus. Not a descendant of Aaron or Levi. And his point is if that system had been, if that lineage, if that descent had been adequate to provide for someone, then someone would have been provided. But if someone had to come from a different lineage, from a different ancestry, then clearly the Levitical line was inadequate. And he goes on to say, Jesus obviously is descended from Judah. No one has ever served before the altar from Judah. The law doesn't even provide for that to happen. Moreover, perfection, what's needed to be in communion with God, be acceptable before an absolutely perfect and holy God, the holy, holy, holy God. This perfection could not be attained, could not be achieved through the priesthood and through the law of Moses. We can go back to verse 11 and verse 19. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise? If that former priesthood was adequate, you don't need a better priest. Clearly it's inadequate because a better priest was sent. And of course in 19 we're told again, the law made nothing perfect. A better hope is introduced. That is Jesus himself. There's another weakness about the priesthood. All those priests died. They were numerous. They were many. There were thousands of them. Sinners subject to death, needing to be replaced over and over and over again. Verse 23 gets us to that idea. None of them has been strong enough, holy enough, in and of himself to lead God's people to God. It had to be shared among many of them. And even then it was incomplete. It had to be repeated over and over and over again, year after year after year, day after day, week after week. And then they died and had to be replaced over and over and over again generation after generation, century after century, the author is saying, if that former priesthood had been so good, it wouldn't have had to have been repeated. The very fact that it had to be repeated by fallible, sinful, mortal men tells us something, or should tell us something, about how inadequate it is to make people perfect so that they can be in communion with God. No progress made over all that time in bringing God's people 
to perfection, despite the rituals, despite all the mediation, despite all the intercession of all those thousands, think of the thousands of priests that lived over the centuries. But then the author goes on to say it's not just the priesthood that's inadequate, but the law that accompanied it given by Moses. That law needed replacing because it was inadequate. The language used here is striking. It ought to make us sit up and take notice. Really? Did he just say that about the law? Look what he says in verse 18 and 19. It's it's so imperfect that it has to be set aside, replaced. Why? Because of its weakness and uselessness. Who says that about God's law? God's law is full of weakness and uselessness. It has to be set aside. It has to be replaced. That's a word that was used in the culture of that day to talk about, to pick a crummy example in life, to to talk about the new wife that replaces an old wife who's divorced. The one is set aside to be replaced by the other. That's the picture that the author is giving to us. The law has to be set aside. It has to be replaced by something better because it's weak and because it's useless. Again, who who says that about God's law? He's going to go on and say even more later in chapter 10 that the law is just a, a shadow. It's just a mere shadow of the reality that we have in Christ. So how do we reconcile that with what we sang earlier from Psalm 19? That God's law is good perfect, holy, desirable, to be desired more than gold itself or the sweetest honey. If that's true, and it is true, how can God's law be weak and useless? I think the beginning of a way around this, and God willing we'll talk a little bit more about this next week, is to make a distinction. The author here is talking really specifically about the law given through Moses applied to the priesthood, but I think in general as well. The system of commands and precepts and all the different rules and regulations given through Moses to the people of Israel. That law that has all sorts of things governing life for the people of Israel, but also how the priesthood functions and serves. It's that expression of God's law through Moses that cannot bring God's people to perfection. The best way that I can think about this, and it's an imperfect analogy, but, but bear with me. Think of, think of a beautiful, exquisite, antique lamp passed down to you maybe from a grandparent or a great-grandparent. It's exquisitely made of the finest materials, beautiful in all of its adornments. Everything is is handcrafted and, and, and just speaks of excellence <clears throat> and beauty. Maybe fine materials are used, silver or gold or precious gems or something like that. But in addition to that, it's not just in and of itself beautiful and valuable, but there's a sentimental attachment to it because it came from grandma or, or great-grandfather or somebody. The problem with that lamp is When you plug it in, it doesn't work. (laughs) It doesn't light up. Something in the mechanics of it, something 
in the wiring isn't right. It needs fixing because it can't bring light. It's beautiful. It's glorious. It has sentimental value. Just like the law. Just like the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law is beautiful. Shows us a picture. Gives us an idea of the greatness and holiness and splendor of God. God is character. God is perfections. It even has sentimental value. Because God gave that law to his people at a time when he had brought them out with great glory and power from enslavement in Egypt. They can remember the time when they got the law with, with emotion and with feeling. But there's a problem with the law. Like that lamp, when you plug it in, it doesn't work. It cannot bring people to perfection. And so what the author says in verse 12, because this is true, there needs to be a change in the priesthood. And if there's a change in the priesthood, there must be a change in the law as well. It's necessary, not optional. I think what we're getting to here, and again, God willing, we'll talk about this some more next week, is the author is leading us to the idea of a new covenant. He's going to talk in chapter 8, when we get there, about the promise given through the prophet Jeremiah of a new covenant written on what? On our hearts, not on stone. It implies, I think, that part of the weakness of the Mosaic Law, what makes it uh, weak and ineffective, is the fact that it's external. It's on stone. It's on clay tablets. It's written on papyrus. So despite being full of grace, it's nevertheless external to us. And since our hearts are deceitful above all things, from Jeremiah 17.9, and only inclined to evil all the time, according to Genesis 6.5, all the way back at the beginning, what needs fixing is our hearts. God's law needs to penetrate into our hearts and that's exactly what is promised in the New Covenant. We can even get a hint of that in verse 22. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. We're leading up to something again that we'll talk about in more depth, Lord willing, next week as we close out chapter 7. So the old has to be set aside because of its weakness and uselessness because the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, In verse 19, a better hope is introduced, and through this better hope, we are able to draw near to God. And who is the embodiment of this better hope? Jesus Christ himself. Just like the promise God gave to Abraham, I think this is why the author talked about it earlier, God seals his promise by swearing an oath. Just like he did with Abraham, so he does with Jesus. Look at verses 20 to 22. The promise made in Jesus was not made without an oath. Those other priests were made priests without an oath. But this one, this Jesus, was made a priest by an oath, by the one God, the Father, who said to him, the Son, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind You are a priest forever. And so Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. God's swearing to the Son is just as sure, just as certain as the oath he made 
to Abraham. He makes that oath on himself. I have sworn. I will do it. You are a priest forever. And so even the Old Testament people of God, in, in hearing the, the oracle, the prophecy from Psalm 110, had to know something better is coming. Something different than Aaron, something different than Moses, something different than the Levites, something different even than David. Superior to them. And God promised to do this. And if God promised to do it, it will be done. And so by God's oath, Jesus is high priest of a better covenant with God for God's people. This makes the priesthood of Jesus better than that of all those Old Testament priests. It's further demonstrated in the fact that Jesus does not die. Unlike those priests who die generation after generation after generation, Jesus is superior because of the evidence of his indestructible life, says the author in verse 16. The comparative weakness of the Old Testament priest, he, going back to 15, this is evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. In other words, if you're a priest, you have to be a descendant of Levite. But a priest by the power of his indestructible life. Jesus not being bound by the grave is proof that he's a better priest a better priest of a better covenant. Again, Melchizedek is just a pattern or shadow. We don't have a biblical record of his birth or death, but he was a mortal man used to illustrate what to expect when Messiah comes. A son who does not die. And he does not die because he cannot die. His life is indestructible. Though hung on a cross, a sacrifice to atone for the sins of God's people, he could not be kept in the grave. So Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, powerful rhetorical questions. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? And so we get to verse 24 where the author says, now, now we have a priest who holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He never dies. Just as a quick aside, this makes the dispensational idea of a thousand years with a new priesthood offering sacrifices on the temple ridiculous. It's utterly unnecessary. A better priest has come. Those old sacrifices could do nothing for God's people. And this is going to be part of the argument we see in Hebrews as it continues in Chapter 7 and chapter 8. Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost, to the completion, to the perfection, without anything missing or lacking. He's able to save those to the uttermost who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Again, we'll hear more about this as we continue to the rest of chapter 7. But powerful statements by the author. The priesthood could not save God's people, could not bring them to perfection. From verse 11, the law itself cannot make anything perfect, according to verse 19. 
Yet God is holy, perfect. Nothing unclean can enter into his presence. Nothing imperfect. Nothing that's not utterly, completely, perfectly righteous and holy. So what can be done? The Old Testament people, those who lived by faith, saw this and recognized it and looked, we are told, in hope to the one who would come and make these things possible. The one to whom God gave his very own oath, the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the promises of God, the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head, the seed of Abraham to bring about blessing and abundance, the prophet greater than Moses, the son of David who would sit on the throne forever, the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. They saw these shadows, they saw these types and patterns and what what they hoped for, what they longed for, what they believed in by faith, even according to Habakkuk 2.4 that was quoted in our New Testament reading from Romans 3. What they believed in by faith, we know the reality of. Because we know Jesus Christ came and fulfilled all those promises. And as the author has been teaching us, he is our high priest and king. What the priesthood and the law could not do, Jesus did and does. All who approach God, says the author here in verse 25, every single person who approaches God through him is made perfect to the uttermost, completely, without anything lacking. How do we do this? How are we made perfect? Well, we approach God through repentance and faith, admitting our sin, admitting our rebellion against God and his law, admitting our need of someone else to save us, because we cannot do it, (laughs) no matter how much we love the law and try to follow it. Receive instead the offer that God makes to us in Jesus. I'll save you. Receive and rest upon the work my son has done for you. Accomplished, finished, complete. Just receive it. The open hand of faith. And when we do this, God makes us perfect. First, declaring us righteous just like Abraham was declared righteousness when he believed the promises of God, not because of what we do, but because of that faith in the promises of God. That's what the author's been pointing us to time and time again in this letter. Look to the promises of salvation. Have faith in those. Because of repentance and faith, our sin is placed upon Christ, nailed to the cross with him, And so it is taken away. We can use, I think, the same language the author uses. Taken away to the uttermost, completely, without anything lacking or missing. Every single sin, every single fault, every single error, every single rebellion is taken away. And in exchange, his perfect obedience, his righteousness, his holiness is credited to our account, just like Abraham. So that now we do stand holy before God, Despite the fact that we struggle with our own sin, we stand holy before God. And if that weren't enough, then God sends the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to make us more holy, to drive out sin. We struggle, we get frustrated in that struggle, but God continues to work in us day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. We know that we're not the same person we were five years ago, ten years ago, 
because God is working in us. We die imperfect, but in the end we rise from death. God glorifies us, makes us perfectly holy through and through. And what has done this? Our great high priest has done this for us. Our great high priest who never dies, and more than that, intercedes before us right now. He's in the presence of God, interceding on our behalf. Remember from verse 20 of chapter 6, he's the forerunner who goes before us on our behalf. That word that has at least two meanings. One, the one who just runs ahead to prepare a way for others to follow, but also the one who goes ahead to announce. Some people are coming. They're coming behind me. That's what Jesus does for us. He prepares the way, having gone behind the curtain, as the author puts it, into the holy places of God. He announces to God the Father, they're coming. My people are coming. I prepared the way. He prays for us. He pleads for us on our behalf before the Father. Again, that old saying goes, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. (laughs) When it comes to every single person who's ever lived, that is not true. We're all broken. We're all sinners. We all need fixing. We all need to be holy. (coughs) And we're not. And only Jesus can fix us. And only Jesus does fix us. Repent and believe now and be saved. And if you have repented and believed, then cling to that sure hope that is yours in your great high priest, Jesus Christ. And know and believe, be certain, that hope cannot be taken away. That that hope cannot ever fail because God himself swore that it cannot be. And God keeps his promises. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we do give you thanks and praise. We are relieved, in fact, that you are a God who keeps his promises. And despite our continuing struggle with sin, that you nevertheless receive us into your presence, clothed in the righteousness of God by grace and through faith, and that you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and in us, to slowly but surely mold us into the image of Christ, our Savior. Would you continue that work in us and for us? Perfect us, draw us to yourself, enable us to walk in light rather than in darkness, to be followers of Christ, to to be those that have your law written upon our hearts and delight in it and glory in it, love it, study it, follow it, teach it to others. May we indeed be those who make disciples of those around us and see the fruit of that witness in the growth of the church of Jesus Christ. We cannot do it in our own strength, but as always we ask that you would empower and enable us by your word and by your spirit and that you would bless us in all that we do. We ask it in Christ's holy and wonderful, precious name. Amen.